0: I think that when you look at J.D. and you look at his journey, I don't think he would change it at all because he the struggle is what made him. He was like a forged in fire type guy. But I, I think when you look at the MVP machine and you look at the way they talk about building players, I, I really think that J.D. is the prime example of what that is, is that somebody has talent. You have to have the natural talent. This guy was a guy who flawed, hit his way to the big leagues. His hand-eye coordination is extremely elite. Extremely elite because of how flawed he was to excel the way he was. But then you take him and he gets into the mindset that he needs to change. This is why and this is how he's going to do it. And he believes in what he's doing. That's when these guys become limitless. Fellas,
1: fellas, fellas. Welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host, Joey Cunha.
2: And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at the Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we're here to be a bridge
1: from where you are to where you're going. We'd like to welcome back our veteran listeners. We're happy to grow with you again. We'd also like to welcome first-time listeners, the rookies. Don't worry, every vet was once a rookie. This podcast is brought to you by our partners over at Yakertech. Yakertech is the gold standard for measuring spin rate, velocity, trajectory, and most important, spin axis of a pitched ball. No other system captures such clarity on a moving ball. Learn more about their system at com. On this episode, we sit down with Greg Brown, head coach at Nova Southeastern University.
2: Pull up a seat grab your notepad here's coach brown
1: welcome back to the farm system we're sitting down with greg brown head coach over at nova southeastern university
2: coach we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to sit down and chat with us here at the farm system
0: appreciate you guys having me on
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, um, again, uh, I've gotten the opportunity to kind of build a relationship with you, Greg, and it's been awesome uh, just, again, getting to pick your brain. And um, you, you've dropped so many nuggets for me and so many things that I've pulled from you. Um, I thought it'd be great for you to jump on and some of the listeners get to uh, dive in and kind of see what you guys got going on over at Nova.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, you guys have been at the forefront of what's going on in the baseball evolution. And, you know, I think it's been amazing to be able to collaborate with you guys and build the relationship. So, Appreciate you guys having me.
2: Absolutely, Coach. The pleasure is ours. And as we get the show kicked off here, um, do you mind giving our listeners a little background of yourself by taking them through your journey to get to this point in your career?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, played uh, Division Two baseball at Lynn University. Um, ended up having a redshirt year, so I ended up getting my master's degree during that time. Uh was fortunate enough to sign as a non-drafted free agent with the Marlins. Um, had about a five-year professional career. I got released in 2007, spring training, ended up going into uh, the Atlantic League and uh, played my final season there. I had a, I had a very good year, um, but I had opportunities. People were calling me about potential scouting jobs. And so, you know, for my family and I, like, we decided, like, hey, now's the time. My wife and I were about to have our first uh, child. And um, I decided to, you know, try to come home and Get a scouting gig, and it's kind of funny because I, I never thought I'd, I never thought I'd want to be a scout. Um, you know, as a player, I always thought it was one, you know, I was going to be a big leaguer, and then two, I just thought I'd go right into player development. But I was fortunate enough that after a year of volunteering uh, down at Broward College, um, which is a community college right here, I was able to get uh, a full-time gig with the Astros as a South Florida area scout, and uh, did two drafts with them, 2009, 2010 worked for uh, an amazing uh, communicator of the art of scouting and Bobby Heck. And he was just a great, you know, coach, if you will, to all of us. And it was a lot of, a lot of new scouts at that time. And it was um, a really fun time to be an Astro because, you know, it was very scout area scout driven, and we were able to um, put a lot of good players in the system. And eventually you saw that leading to a world series title, which is really cool. None of us were really around to see that, but that's all right. You know, like that's part of, that's part of the nature of a business, but 2010 summer, right after the draft, I had the opportunity to become the head coach at Nova Southeastern university, uh, which I saw as a sleeping giant, uh, never been to the postseason season and NCAA. And yet we had, um, uh, not at the time, but now there's been four big leaguers that have come through the program, but, and, you know, most famously, uh, J.D. Martinez, Mike Fiers, and Miles Michaelis. Carlos Asuahe ended up playing for me in 2011 to 2013. But during that time, um, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me. I was 30 years old. I became a head baseball coach. I had one year of volunteer uh, experience. You know, fortunate, uh, Mike Momney, who was the athletic director and baseball coach, decided it was time for him to give up the baseball and focus on being the athletic director. And he had called me about the job and wanted me to be a successor. and um, you know, for me, again, being in my hometown, I live three miles from campus. Um, it's where I trained in the offseason. So it was very comfortable for me. And we hit the ground running. And uh, since then, uh, we've been to the playoffs. Uh, we've been to the regional seven out of nine years. We've uh, right now, I think we're on a streak of five straight, uh, won the national championship in 2016, won the conference for the first time in program history in 2015 uh just were co-champions again this year in 2019 and really honestly it's been something like we've built a culture and a tradition um that I'm very proud of I've I've had a lot of assistant coaches get opportunities to move elsewhere Brian Peters is the recruiting coordinator at Long Beach State Justin Ramsey uh he's now at with the Baltimore Orioles uh I got six area scouts in our in our um market in South Florida uh either played for me, worked for me, or was a bird dog for me. And that's a pretty cool um, thing that 20% of the league is covered by guys that have come through our program. And so, you know, I mean, I think that when I take that moment to look back at what we've done and, and, um, you know, how fast it's gone by this this nine years, I'm very proud of it. And, um, you know, I like this. I can't wait to see what we do here in the future.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's awesome, and I know one thing uh, you're used to out there in Florida is walking in the spider webs, and so you just did that one. Um, you, you know, <laughs> you talked about <laughs> you talked about that uh, 2016 season, um, obviously a, a very notable one uh, for Nova, and I wanted you to kind of dive into that. You know, getting that Division Two championship. You know,
0: walk us through what that season was like and what you pulled away from it. That season was actually a difficult season. We we had. um, I thought we were really talented, but we had a lot of new players, and uh, we started out the year 11 and 10, and we were about to go on the road and face uh, our rival, which is University of Tampa, which is at this current juncture is the most storied um, Division II program, in my opinion, Uh, you know, at least in the last 20 years. They've they've dominated our conference, Um, so we were about to go on the road there, and it was looking a little bit dormy because you know you're going to be halfway through the season, you had a chance to be under 500. But what happened was our staff knew something was wrong and we we were kind of, we had just kind of swept over the weekend and all three games we should have won, but we found ways to lose. And, and so we're sitting there 11 and 10 and, and um, instead of practicing on that Monday, we ended up having a, a, basically like a team meeting that forced conversation because you use that analogy of the iceberg where only 20% of it is above water, you know, 80% submerged underneath Uh, That was what was going on with us. You know, most adults or us as a coaching staff, like you probably wouldn't think that the issues that the team was having were really a big deal, but to them, it was. And so by getting them to be able to air that out, the conversation led to better communication. It led to better care for each other. And we got rolling from that point on. And uh, we went into Tampa. We won two out of three, had a chance to sweep, played uh, just exceptional the rest of the way. We went 33-6, and which included – a loss to, uh, University of Miami, which was number one in the country at that time when we played them. And, uh, it was just a really, uh, fun ride. And once we got rolling, uh, my job as the head coach was kind of just keep steering it, but allow them, allow them to allow all that momentum to keep going. And, um, uh, once we got into the world series and we looked around at the opponents and we looked at how we were playing and we saw that there was a really great opportunity for us to, uh, win the tournament, um, I thought my staff did an amazing job of putting us in that position. Our scouting um, was really on point during that time period. And our players stepped up. And it re- it was it's so great when I look back and think about it at that time, because two pitchers in particular stepped up during that run, which had not had a lot of success for probably about 90% of their entire careers. And you look at their last 10%, those were the guys that were key to keep it going. And, um, you know, I I think that we, we always think of championships coming from like the best players, like the top of your roster. It's really that it's really that second tier player, that glue guy that can, can get you guys over the hump. And that's what I saw in there. I I didn't think we had the most talented roster we've ever had uh, that day or that year. Um, but we did, have great chemistry, and there was a lot of love for each other, and and those were the things that carried us through in that second half and through the World Series.
2: Yeah, man, that's so good. And and obviously, like you alluded to there, having success at the college level comes from having good players uh, most of the time. Obviously, you guys have had eighteen players drafted since two thousand eleven, uh, with several big leaguers, like you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, how do you guys approach player development there at Nova, and how do you work to individualize that uh, in the team constraint?
0: Well, I think that the first thing that we do is try to create individualized uh, training protocols. And, um, you know, I think that I think coaching has a macro and a micro approach. And so my job as the head coach is obviously to formulate the the program, where we're going, how we want to achieve, um, you know, where community service and where um, team defense and where offense and where pitching all the we, you know, what how much are we going to put in each basket is what we get to judge from a macro. And then the micro becomes the fine tuning. And I think that you have to take every asset that you have in our program. We have 40 players. We have to find ways to maximize each of them because not all their goals are the same, not all their abilities are the same. And so I think a lot of it starts with um, creating uh, conversations to find out what they want first. Um, The macro comes from me. That's what I want. I want a team that's built with integrity, accountability, respect. I want a team that's going to um play hard. We'll judge by our energy and effort. But on a micro level, we need to know that this, you know, player X wants to be a doctor. Okay, so how do we make him become doctor X? Like how, how do we do that? Well, it's not going to be with make, you know, grinding him after hours like you need to get in the cage. You need to, well, we need to maximize his 3 hours that he has practiced that day so that however many hours he's going to put to his academics is, is heavier towards what his end goal is. The player that says, I want to be a big leaguer, that's the one that needs to probably put extra effort into, whether it's nutrition, gym. I mean, all of them can benefit from that. We know that. But their end goals are what matter. And So if we focus on the players individually in their time beyond the team, because during the team practice, it's all, all the expectations are going to be that everybody's doing what they're being asked to do to benefit the program. And and so I think that it's a challenge. I think that it's time consuming. I think it's the most rewarding thing that we do though, because when you start building those relationships and you, and they know that you care about them, you can have those harder conversations or when it comes to role profiles, you know, having them, um, embracing it, but not accepting it. And, and I think that's a concept that's very important because just if you're the backup catcher behind a guy this year, next year, you might be counted on to be the man. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, this year we have a kid named Alex Hernandez, whose brother was a four-year starter for me, uh, catcher. And Alex has been a two-year backup. And the two years that he was the backup, different starting catchers won the gold glove in the country. Um, And so now this is his incumbent year where as as a junior, he's going to have an opportunity to be an everyday player and he's going to have an opportunity uh, to go out and excel. But he continued to work and strive to be the best version of himself. He continued to ask questions. And that, to me, was a sign that as a coach, we were reaching him, even though he wasn't contributing at the highest level from a statistical standpoint this year or in the last two years. What we were doing was we were investing in him as if he was, even though during the games he didn't get to play as much. And I think that that's a really important thing as far as keeping people connected and keeping people wanting to be a part of something greater than themselves. Because I think that part of the human condition is we, we know that that is a large part of to belonging, right, is is feeling like you're 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 a part of something that's much bigger than yourself. And so, how do you do that? Well, you keep them invested, and we don't have a high transfer rate. We don't have guys that leave our program. And I think the reason is is because we even when they're not getting to do exactly what they want, their role is not exactly what they want it to be. They're still embracing what it is, and they like being a part of an organization that that loves them and and treats them like they have value even if they're not performing.
2: Yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm here trying to see if I have any eligibility left. You got me sold. Um, <laughs> when, when, when you look at that more from a uh, holistic view, um, take us through what a day of practice looks like you guys, for you guys there.
0: You know, it, it starts usually in the weight room. Um, typically, we're going to have weights uh, from a position player side. We're going to have weights um, in the middle of the day at uh, 12 p.m. And then when they get out on the field, um, we set it up and we have early work is for them. It's what they feel their needs are on that given day. And it, it gives them a little bit of autonomy as to controlling their, it, you know, using it in the context of a swing. It's their autonomy to go do the drills that they want to do, the drills that they find beneficial and what they need at that moment. Uh, when we get into the team setting, what we do is the first thing we do. Is we get together as a team and we meet, and it's usually about five minutes. But it's something I implemented a couple of years ago, and it had to do with this kid who had a great personality uh, on the team, and uh, he fully embraced this. And it started as a joke, but he he went out and killed it. But what we would do is, public speaking is a challenge for a lot of young men, right? You know, I think that 18 to 22 year olds are still finding their voice. They're still finding their confidence. They don't wanna they want to be more in the group rather than out front. And so uh, we started doing uh, public speaking opportunities by letting them do uh, monologues. And so kids would have, they would know the day before that it was their turn to do the monologue. They would have to prepare it. And uh, some guys really fully embrace this and they come out and they do movie quotes. And it's just, it's a really lighthearted way to get the day rolling. And so when we do that, it usually puts them at ease. And so, and so then when we get back into our hyper-focus of what the day's plan is, um, I have their attention, and I think that it also keeps things a little bit fresh for all them because you never know kind of what you're going to get. And my favorite one ever was uh, this player came out and he did uh, the song "Dracula's Lament," which is from <laughs> "Forgetting Sarah Marshall," uh-huh. and he sang it all a cappella and it, you know just had <laughs> us all rolling. And I, I that was the thing that really got it going. And so. And and the reason I say that is because I go back in the culture, I think it's so important that you let them have fun. I think it's so important that we embrace that, hey, we have personality and we have different personalities. And we understand that some guys are going to be, you know, poor at, at the monologue. But what's amazing is over time how much better they get at it. And to me, that's just trying to equip them with the tools and the confidence to go out and perform, not only on the field, but in the classroom and beyond. So, but after that we get into, we get into our dynamic stretch routine and then we get into our base running. We hit base running every single day. Um, usually around 10 to 12 minutes. Um, we, we use, we're very aggressive. I think we stole over a hundred bags again this year. Um, we, we use, um, we're very, uh, it's very systemic. Um, it gives the players again, a lot of autonomy, but In order to give players autonomy, we need to make sure that we are prepared. And so that's something that we prepare every single day. And then we go into our individuals and team defense. Uh, I I do try to mix that up. I don't always do the same routine, whether, you know, from from stretch to base running, throw, individuals. Sometimes we'll do an offensive thing first. I just, I I don't like the monotony of baseball practice in the way it's always been. So I try to create a little bit of variability there. And then we get into our, our team defenses. I, I'm very adamant that they don't last longer than 15 minutes. So sometimes they're 10 minutes, but I think if you're getting something wrong over and over, and I've been in part of those practices that a player now all of a it's a 45 minute team defense. I just don't think there's value in that for all of the players because, you know, one or two guys continually mess that up. So what I try to do is if, if we're in that scenario, I would, just cut it off after 15 minutes. And I just make sure that that's the team defense that we're doing again tomorrow. Um, and then, and then I create an individuals, I've worked with the catchers. Um, and so for me, the catching part of it is something that our program really benefits from because not every program has a catching coach. And, and so, you know, I, I've, I've kind of cut my teeth in that area. Um, it's what I played. It's what I loved. I probably always saw myself as being a catching coordinator one day, and so from that, uh, it's been something that I, I, I always like to have individuals because I always like to work with my catchers. You know, that's kind of part of it probably just scratches my itch. And then lastly, then we get into our offensive rotation. And our offensive rotation, um, we, we, we have a ton of variability in what we do offensively. Uh, I used to be on the field BP every single day, nonstop. Um, you know, it was probably the one guaranteed thing that the guys were going to get. And I, I've since flipped that. Um, I, love, I love arcade stations. I like, I like creating drills, and then I like creating variables within every single drill. And so on a given day, I want them to have the ball in flight. I want them hitting off a machine every single day. I do like machine on the field. And, and I, I think I harken back to like when I was a player. As a hitter, I hated hitting off of a machine. And really, it was due to I wasn't very good. And so because I wasn't very good, I was afraid of failure and i was afraid of of not looking the best you know and and there's there's something that uh is very powerful in that fear that i want to try to um just kind of knock that out of them hey you can't avoid this machine cuz this is your group rotation today on the field and and you know i know that i know that um it's become very popular especially in professional baseball we've seen a lot of that change um as far as the Monotony of BP to now going more game-like, and and I think you're going to see more teams jump into that. But it's just something that I think you have to challenge, and I think that practice should be done that way, where you have acquired skills and you're just maintaining. I think you have another portion where you're going into a uh, like you know a failure drill, and then you have one where it's slightly attainable. And I think that if you kind of find your mix within your group as to what they like and what they what they excel at. And then you constantly tweak those things. Then you're going to see just this momentum of growth over time. Uh, My teams tend to hit better in the second half than they do the first half. And usually we're playing better competition in the second half of the season. It's just, I think that it has to do with our training. I'm very swing oriented in the fall during individuals. And then I'm very approach based when we get into fall practice and get into spring practice. I think it's, it's about, teaching movement patterns. It's about teaching what works for this guy versus that guy, but also how do you create dynamic swings? How do you create, We got to give them more options than just, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and I mean this, um, I want everybody to get their A swing off, but the A swing to that pitch, it's not about my A swing and, you know, hell or high water. I need to be able to have adjustability and be dynamic and be able to understand that there's a different in my swing when I'm facing a left-handed cutter as a right-handed hitter versus a right-handed slider uh, that's down and away. I think that we have to understand how to utilize our strength and then apply it into the game. And so to me, that's where the approach-based training comes, and that's where the variability comes. And I don't think there, ha- I don't think there has to be a lot of instruction. I want it to, I, I, there are intrinsic cues and there are things that, um, or I'm sorry, I said intrinsic, I, I meant internal cues that are going to be required sometimes for a player to learn. But I I want them to try to have that discovery rather than me just tell them what that is or what my version of what that reality is. Because that's the hard part of coaching is that you you know where it's going to end, but can you stay process-oriented when you're asking them to stay process-oriented? Because trust me, in that first half of the season, when we're not clicking on all cylinders offensively, I'm just as frustrated as they are from the perspective of I want, you know, I want to, I want to have a 300, 400, 500 mark in in all, you know, the three major offensive categories every single moment of the season. You know, I want a 300 batting average. I want a 400 slugging. I mean, a 400 on base and a 500 slugging as a team. That's my goal every single year for our group. And is it hard? Yeah, it's hard to attain. But I think it's possible. And I think that you have to set those goals and you have to understand that there's going to be an ebb and flow in a 50-game, 56-game season or 162 when you're playing in the big leagues, but they are all attainable. So sticking to your process and not losing sight of what happens on the minute you know, one-game sample size or one series and understanding that there's a long-term process to that. So to me, that's the holistic view.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And you know, one of the things you had mentioned, and I know again, the word around the block, especially over at uh, ABCA, you presented on this, right? Is you're a big catching guy. So I wanted you to kind of dive into that of what you guys are doing different, uh differently over at Nova in regards to your catchers.
0: So I had a friend of mine challenge me on this, and and he came to me. He was a professional player, and he came to me for some offensive stuff that he needed some help with. And he loved it. He he benefited from it. He thought it was something that was Very easy and adaptable, yet didn't understand why most coaches aren't out there coaching that way. And, you know, I mean, those are the things that once you kind of have those aha moments, like everybody's like, how did I not think about that? Or how did I not challenge myself to grow that way? Well, when I was teaching catching, I was teaching it in that very um, old school way. I was teaching it in a very, this is what you do, because, well, that's how I was taught the position. And yet in hitting, I was teaching, I was teaching a very evolved process. And so my buddy who was a catcher, who's now a catching coordinator, he says to me, he goes, why don't you teach catching this way? He goes, I'm watching you coach catchers and you're coaching catchers, not like you coach hitters. And so right when he said that to me, that was my moment. I had to go, Oh my gosh, I got, I'm messing guys up right now. You know, I'm not improving them as much as I can. And, and it's funny because, How can I be evolved in one side and then be limited, you know, be closed-minded in another? And it was just this very, um, it was a great awakening for me. And so from a catching perspective, the things that I like to do is build the athletes. I want to build athleticism in their setup, and it starts in their setup, right? We have to be able to posture them and have them athletic so that they can move. I mean, think about the stuff that we're seeing every single day on TV. We're seeing big-time stuff, late movement we're seeing change-ups being dialed up to rotate differently than, you know, some guys maybe always had those pronated change-ups, but now like they're being, they're being trained to do that. They're like, they're, they're understanding the pitch shaping, which has just created an even greater challenge for a catcher. And so I think the days of the slow catcher, non-athletic catcher are just, they're gone, but it's out of evolution. It's not, it's not because they're not durable or they can't move. It's, it's, I just think that this is what it's required. And when you look at guys like Austin Barnes or Tony Walters and, and these guys that um, they're, you know, they're basically middle infielders playing behind the dish, but that's what the evolution looks like. So one, you try to recruit to that. And then two, I think that what you do is you create a system that's based on receiving, but it's also based on athleticism and posture so that once you put them in those positions, the other skills that are required of throwing and blocking—they're they're things that are more easily gained. And what I mean by that is that if I have a bad setup and I'm not throwing anybody out, there's probably a cause and effect there. If if I'm not if I'm late to my blocks, there's probably a cause and effect that we can root in how we're um, getting into our different stances. And I think that's something that we tend to judge catchers by outcomes like they catch 99 balls in a row nobody says anything they catch one or one ball hits the backstop we all notice that well i think that's you know when a guy steals a base and we see an errant throw we're judging the throw but we have to take it back and go well was there a posture problem was there an athletic problem so let's focus in on that and so i think that's how i kind of retooled it um i do a ton of um I, I, I try to I try to create variances the same way I do um, in the offensive training. We create variances for catchers. We do things that are I don't. I'm, it's not gimmicky. Like that, that's the one thing that I think you know we can all outshine each other on Twitter by posting the most ridiculous thing that we can have them do. You know, we'll put horse blinders on them and and you know like and hit them in the face with a broom and see if he can catch the fastball. Like, uh, or, or what we can do is we can take slight variances into our drill sets. And, and maybe that, maybe that has to do with angles. Maybe it has to do with, uh, you know, the gloves. I, I love variants in gloves. I love changing the glove so that we're doing the same drill constantly with different stimuli. And so how can we, how can we get better at it? Well, I think if we challenge ourselves in the practice, then we go back into our regular mitt, um, you know, and we're in game. We're more relaxed because the hardest part, those who've caught know this feeling. When you have that erratic pitcher who throws hard and you don't know where it's going and there's an anxiety. There's an anxiety that goes through a catcher's spine because he has to be on pins and needles because he has no idea where this pitch is going to go, even though he's calling it. And that feeling is something it's very hard to prepare for if you just catch a like a normal fastball. A, you just catch them from a very comfortable stance. I think you want to challenge them. I think that you want to create um, that tension so that when it becomes the game, it's much more relaxed. And that's, you know, uh, I think we've had success because my last two catchers were both guys who were considered to not be, they were considered to be power first catchers. One of them was considered not to be, um, able to catch. I mean, you know, like, I mean, that was basically the way it. scouts on the other one, you know, thought that he had a hard hand. Well, it turns out again, both of them won gold gloves. Um, both of them are in professional baseball. And right now, one of them, uh, the first one, his name is Jake Anchia. Uh, he's rating the top 10 of all catchers, major league on down in receiving and stealing strikes. And, and I look at it in that case and point is that we don't know how to evaluate catchers. Amateur catchers are the worst return on the draft process. When we select them, their return to get to the big leagues is very, very low. And so what we have to understand is that what we think or what, what, what as scouts, we think is good is maybe needs to be reconsidered. And it's a hard thing to do because when you see guys that are leading the league in stolen strikes, they often have a lot of drops. And that's a hard thing to kind of just negate in your mind because forever we only noticed the catcher when he was missing pitches. From a scouting perspective, uh, you know, he's got a lot of drops. I did that with – I can tell you where I did that. There was a catcher who uh, played – a high-profile catcher ended up going in the first round. I'm watching him in college at the University of Miami, and his money ground had a ton of drops, and he wasn't clean with the baseball. And, you know, I really – I really – Had a trouble um, accepting him to be a good catcher, like or potential down the road. Well, you know, fast forward a couple years, and (laughs) the dude was leading the league in receiving stats. And you go, well, what was I missing? And it's a really hard concept to even for people who I think are familiar with the position. It's a hard concept to just let go that hey, drops are okay. But I think when you watch major league games now, guys are living in the fringes so much that they're going to have drops on the edges, and and they're okay with that because the risk-reward of gaining the strike is much better. Because if it's a ball, it's a ball. Who cares? But when we're getting those balls on the edges in that gray area, those stolen strikes are creating what's the value of the catcher and who they're paying in arbitration and who they're paying in free agency right now more so than ever before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. Uh, definitely different perspective there. And, you know, I wanted to dive into this as well. Um, I was in uh, Florida with you about a week ago, probably two weeks ago when this actually airs, but um, we were talking, uh, you know, we're talking through a couple different things. And one of the things we, we were talking through is uh, we're, we're walking through MVP machine. We're talking about how the Astros again, missed. Um, or, you know, in quotations, they're missed, uh, JD Martinez, um, released them. And again, that was supposed to be one of the top analytical departments in all of baseball at the time, right? They were on their upswing. And then, you know, we, we talked through how the, you know, they were using data and analytics for player evaluation, um, and when they evaluated, you know, JD, uh, they obviously after they, that evaluation, they ended up releasing him. And so did, you know, every other team, um, and the league passed on him as well. And then he comes back, he makes all of these changes, uh, comes back and then, you know, obviously the rest is history there. But, um, you know, when we were talking through that, you dropped a really, you know, big nugget when it came to why you thought that that fit uh, more of like him, his mentality and why those changes happened. And I wanted you to kind of share uh, that insight with the listeners as well.
0: Well, you know, JV was a guy who um, nothing came easy for him. You know, it was always it was always something, uh, you know, in the draft. He fell to the 20th round, and we were lucky enough to be able to select him. Um, you know, he got slighted in the money. You know, I signed him for $30,000. Uh, I mean, so, you know, that was something that was a motivating factor for him, right? And then he gets into – all he does is he gets into um, – minor leagues and hits 340 something and gets to the big leagues within 2 years. You know, again, you, if if you knew that was going to be the outcome and you knew JD would be J- who JD is now, which is an MVP candidate and which is a World Series champion and you know, a game changer when it comes to putting him in your lineup because he's going to make every hitter around him better not only from the building of a lineup but because of what he's doing after hours and before games uh, in approach it is I think that you draft him one one in almost every draft in history. I mean, like that's like that's that's playing the hindsight twenty twenty. But I think that when you look at J D and you look at his journey, I don't think he would change it at all because he the struggle is what made him he was like a forged in fire type guy. And every time he got comfortable, I thought, in his life, he didn't excel. I think it was constant, it was always constant like constant adjustments, constant change, like he didn't like comfortability. And and I think you look at that in his playing career. So he gets to the big leagues. He hits 250, which is major league average. He was hitting 250 with the Astros in his Astros career. He led them twice in RBIs and he was considered a failure. And because why? He didn't feel, he, he wasn't feeling the power and the slugging numbers in the way that a, um, a player who played left field and was defensively not rated. Well, uh, he, he didn't like, Kill that that typical what we want what, what, that's the production that we want out of that player. his realization and his evolution um, came internally, and he had swing adjustments that he found he realized that he needed to make because how do you tell a guy that's hitting three forty four that he needs to make changes right you know that's that's a hard thing, like why is he going to change while he's in his minor leagues? And he and I started having those conversations at the beginning of his professional career like jd i think that we can evolve and i used to do study mike epstein hitting a lot and so i was talking about circular hand paths and i was talking about big circular movements and jd was such a linear hand path approach that where it was very hands oriented he had a double load and all this stuff has been chronicled as far as how he used to operate but he had that power v type stroke and i think that when you look at his success it's it's hard for somebody who's so reliant on themselves who always had the highest beliefs. He thought a swing was the best looking swing in all of baseball in the early part of his career. And so when you when you take that type of commitment and confidence and like and to me a lot of like his stubbornness, it it was all forged into when the swing change happened. And when you looked at how there was a toxic relationship with him and the manager at the time. Um, There was other issues internally with their staff where JD was, JD's changes in the things that he did in that off season going into the 2014 season were never going to be seen by the Astros because of past performance. And it was, you know, past predictors going to be the greatest predictor of future behaviors. And they were, they, and really the ship had sailed, even though they recognized, when he went down to Venezuela and he was an all-star and he hit ten home runs in about nineteen twenty games, and then he goes into spring training early and he's showing off this new swing, showing off the new rhythm, showing off the new power. And you know, here, you know, he's our guy. You know, JD, we're so proud of you. you. Made changes, you did great. And I give him eighteen at bats in that spring training. And and I think that when you look at all of that, and then he gets released and he gets picked up, and when he gets picked up. He goes out and he continues to perform right away, and he he's in Toledo. He's, I think he hit I think he hit about nine home runs, and again the same sample size, about twenty games. And as he does this, the guy that believed in himself, the guy that was driving this, was the guy that was never satisfied with his status. And I really believe it was just this com- this commonality that I saw in him and some other great hitters that I played with as well as um, one of the players, uh, one of the players that I've had who got to the big leagues, like where despite any of their shortcomings, they, their ability to tap into their belief and their conviction, it was what, uh, what really forged them forward in being able to overcome and make, and make wholesale changes and belief that he belonged. He believed he belonged at the highest level of baseball, and while he's watching other guys perform, he's had to have like it's just that bottom-out understanding of, I need to improve, I need to adjust, I need to do this. And, and, and I look at JD on a daily basis and I, I go, this is somebody, knowing him like I know, he's going to hit late in his career if his body holds up. And the reason is is because he is constantly obsessed with being great. And because of that, his relentlessness, Never lets up. So on each day, his body feels one way, and he's going to make that adjustment so that he can get to center. Like if 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 his a swing is at uh, the metaphorical center, when he is when he gets to the far left in his swing, whether that's like a leaky hip or is you know he's over rotating or whatever whatever it is in his mind that day, he has drills and approach that he's going to center it back. And then when he's off in a different direction he's going to be able to drill and get it centered back. And I think that that is what separates players that not only get there, but they can stay there and perform and thrive. And so for me, even as his body changes over time and as, as you know, the natural decline that players have later in their careers, I think that he's going to find ways to get his a swing off, even as it goes. And, and I think it's because of the way he was forged and Not everybody's made that way. It it takes a different person to be that relentless in the pursuit. Um, But I I think when you look at the MVP machine and you look at the way they talk about building players, I I really think that JD is the prime example of what that is, is that somebody has talent. You have to have the natural talent. This guy was a guy who flawed, hit his way to the big leagues. His hand-eye coordination is extremely elite extremely elite because of how flawed he was to excel the way he was. But then you take him and he gets into the mindset that he needs to change. This is why, and this is how he's going to do it. And he believes in what he's doing. That's when these guys become limitless. One of the challenges we have as a, as an industry is going, we're (laughs) JD wasn't that guy. He was young. And I don't know if he would have achieved the same way had those swing changes taken place earlier in his life. I don't know, because maybe he would not have gotten to such an elite level hand-eye coordination. I don't know. Like, I don't have those answers. I, I, like, mm-hmm. we like to think, hey, we're giving optimal swings to people early. I think there's a natural evolution that we learn things even in our failure. Mm-hmm. And we learn things that even when we're doing things the wrong way, like, we we find we're, we're finding success, I think that those are the players that we have to be able to have the, the basis of what their success is and then evolve them. More, more importantly, what we're taking uh, to a player is let's take their natural strengths, because not all the A swings across the league all look the same because of all the different attributes that every single player has, but we try to get them to their optimal Um, but JD also has evolved as a hitter and he's had the ability to, I mean, he was one of the early adopters of attacking the high fastball. And if you go back into the way he was forged as a kid, all the way up into his first rise into the big leagues, well, it was very hand oriented. It was very, it was precision based hand eye coordination in his swing. So now when you take his adjustment that he's going to the top of the zone with his new swing, I think that he has an extra level of precision that he can attain that others who did not train the same way he did growing up are unable to do. Like some guys have, have a, a strong loop in their swing, right? Like, like it's just something that's ingrained into it. And it's, it's where their body is. I think that in the fight or flight moment, a lot of times they're going to fall back into that. Well, J.D. was trained more handy. And so in the fight or flight moments, He's going to be able to jump fastballs through like a reaction that had been trained over 18 years of his life. And then when you look at like what he's done now, that's what's allowed him to attack different zones better or different pitches better. And you notice the flight of his balls and you look at what's going on. I mean, it's been so consistent to the big part of the field. And that's where you apply. It's not swing, it's approach as well. And and it's like, it's not solely swing. And that's something that his journey is what created that, the culmination of that. It wasn't something that he was born with. It wasn't something that was predestined. You know, Griffey had a lot of that, right? I mean, Griffey was just such a natural player, and, and you know, I mean, there were so many players, especially back in the day, that we can we can point to that that there was such there was such a ease of operation from the moment that they put a bat in their hands. Well, J.D. wasn't that guy. It was, it was blue-collar approach, and it's, it's relentlessness. And I think it's something that I'm forever grateful that I've had the ability to not only see him as a young player in college, then be able to draft him out of college, and then be able to coach him later um, throughout his pro- professional career and be able to hear him speak about it. Because I'm always in awe as to where he is and how he evolves. You know, during, during the season, we don't talk a lot. When he gets back and we start to train, um, I, I try to always, like, check the temperature. Like, where is he at? Where is he at mentally? And what's he focused? What did he learn this year that has become what he is? And I think a lot of times I become, like, this, this like, core competency type approach to him where I can give him, hey, this is where we were before, you know, you left last year. How much did you focus on that? Or Because I think that when you get caught up in the daily minutia of your swing and, you forget sometimes what you have been doing to make you successful. And so but a lot of times that's where, where I try to center him and get him because during a long season and the way your body feels, the adjustments you got to make, you get off kilter really quick. And, but it's necessary for you to perform. And during the off seasons, usually when your body is feeling the best. And so it's, it's easy to get back into that routine. Um, I think that, you know, after, you know, those late flights and, All the challenges that big leaders do have um, to be able to get their bodies ready to play every day. I think that's something that we have to constantly uh, be aware of the human condition and be able to get guys to perform.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So much good information to take away from there, coach. And as we transition towards the end of the conversation here, um, we have a lot of young guys that tune in that are aspiring to be in your shoes one day. (laughs) What what advice do you have for that young guy tuning in?
0: You know, I think a lot of it. Just be where you are, and and try to be um, making an impact on every single player, every single person you come in contact with, because you don't know where it's going to lead. And and opportunities come. It's such a cosmic way, I think, because of interactions that you've had with coaches over the years, and people you've gotten to meet, and or maybe somebody that's been on the uh, in the opposing dugout that has watched the way you operate and seen the way your teams play you just never know where the opportunities are going to come. You know, I, I think throughout my career, I've been very fortunate to be very South Florida-based, which is where I'm from. But, you know, at different times in my career, I've gotten calls from schools on the West Coast or, or uh, you know, about opportunities in professional baseball,
1: um,
0: you know, things that haven't been the right fit necessarily, but uh, or I haven't been the right fit for them. But in the end, it's come through different relationships that I've formed over the years. And I think it's very important to understand that, job seeking is um not necessarily the way because you know you tend to not focus on what you're doing what you need to excel at and what you need to learn and i I think that long story that i just told about jd that i probably didn't even answer joey's uh uh, (laughs) thought or, or even say what he wanted me to say was that you're learning with through your mistakes the greatest year of coaching for me was the year I volunteered at Broward College and I had just had a newborn baby. I just retired from baseball. My whole identity is changing and I stayed, I coached a team for free and then afterwards I would do my lessons at night and I would forge myself forward through all the mistakes because I made so many mistakes. I mean, I probably owe a lot of people money from those lessons back (laughs) in the day because I probably screwed them up more than I helped them. But at the time I was doing what I thought was right. And, you know, I know Eugene Bleeker has a great story about that, about how, you know, his epiphany came, um, you know, hearing uh, Ron Wolfert speak at the ABCA and how he's like, man, I've been doing all this wrong. And, you know, and I think that for me, those epiphanies have happened along the way. Um, and but I, I do believe that that's why. As I've hired as many coaches as, you know, the turnover that I've had on my staff, which has all been great, but the turnover I've had, um, it allows me to help accelerate their development quicker because I'm like, hey, I've made those mistakes before here. This is why I like, you know, developing this player this way. And so it gives you through your struggles, it gives you um, the ability to maybe get there quicker in the process. Um, And you never know when it's going to, that light switch is really going to come on for a player but at least as a coach if you continue to be those bumpers that keep them going in the direction like in the lane that that you you're, you're going to allow them to, you know find it their own way but you're not going to let them fall too far off and so i think coaches do that same thing too we 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 look for the next job or two jobs from now rather than focused on the job that we have and i mean i i know that it's attractive i know it's attractive to jump into professional baseball or to jump at that division one level, but you need to be ready when you get the opportunity. It's very challenging to walk in and thinking that you have it all figured out and then realizing that you know nothing. And I did that as a head coach. So I, my lesson is I was a head coach after only one year of coaching experience and then two years of scouting. And then I jump into um, a manager seat at a, at a potential giant division two program. And I thought I knew everything and I took that team by the collar and I said, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. And for two years, we did just that. Um, but I realized I didn't like the direction I was the way I was coaching. I didn't like the direction we were going. I didn't like the character of the team. I needed to make some adjustments. It didn't mean that there weren't great kids within those programs those years, but it was adjustments that needed to be made for our long-term development. And in that, I had to like reset and go, okay, here, this is what I thought I knew. This is what I need to know. This is where I need to get better at and start listening to the people that I had around me. And the people that I had around me were excellent, excellent communicators. And they were excellent developers of, of not only baseball players, but human beings. And those were things that I probably had gotten close minded to. I had surrounded myself with really good coaches that, you know, you you want to value your assistant's opinion. Well, the only way you're going to value an assistant's opinion is if you listen to them. Um, The only way, like you hired them for a reason to make you better where you're weak. And by doing that, and then not listening to them, you're not getting better where you're weak. And that's, that's the biggest issue in today's, Hey, look at me approach. Hey, look at me. I'm the smartest guy in the room. Most of the time when you walk in the you walk into a room, there's a lot of talented people there the the person that is going to be the leader amongst them will be obvious, but it won't be the most outspoken. it won't be the most um, it, it might not even be the sharpest dress, but I think when you see the interactions and you see the way people lead and you see the way people um, intently listen to others, that's when it's going to be so obvious to everybody, and I think that that's something that we all want to fast forward our resume. I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I don't dream of the day that I'm in a big league dugout leading a big league team. Like that's not – that is still a dream of mine. It's just right now the path that I'm on, I've chosen this is where I'm supposed to be. This is the impact that I'm making on my community, a community I care about, uh, people that I love. I get to go to work and have a great time uh, with the people that I work with. Um, I have administration that supports me and I get to be a family man and I get to be um, involved in their lives, my kids' lives every day. And that's something that's, you know, you you can't put a price tag on that. And so to me, that's the advice piece. It it comes from understanding that sometimes you got to take a step back to move forward. Sometimes you got to stay where you are to be even stronger. And sometimes you got to be able to just forget what you know and start listening to others and that's the thing that i'm so grateful that i got to because at the time that i got ready to collaborate my life started having people that i wanted to collaborate with in my life it's it's it kind of was like that moment that i was ready to collaborate all of a sudden guys like joey or blinker you know bo like you guys start popping up in my life um ron wolfer you know i mean like guys lance wheeler I mean, these are all people that I've gotten to uh, interact with. You know, I, I go out to driveline. I have conversations with, you know, with Jason and Kyle. I'm like, get to go in there open-minded. And, I mean, there was one time where Kyle was talking about my program um, uh, through Twitter. And, and it was just funny because a couple of my players were big um, followers of Kyle and, and driveline. And I had used some of their programming in the past. And they were, they were tripping out about it. And, and it was and like, you know, from, from my perspective, it's pretty awesome when you have somebody that's so influential talking about your program. Eugene asked me to do a forward in his book. I mean, I'm, I'm like, that was like one of the coolest things anybody's ever asked me to do. And, and and I look at that like stuff and, and that all has come into my life because I was able to, you know, check the ego and go, all right, what don't I know and who knows it and how can I get better at it or how can I challenge it? Because one of the fun parts about reading Eugene's book, this is one of the things that I love so much, conversations that he and I had a couple years ago where he had asked for some information like of what I was doing and, and, and maybe I was just intrinsically doing something, but I, I gave him the information. I'm like, hey, this is what I do and this is what I think um, helps our hitters hit the way we hit and I think he went into a lab and he was able to extract so much more of, of what that was. And, and, you know, maybe I gave him a nugget, but then, he, you know, he turned it into this um, unbelievable amount of information that is truly beneficial to our game. And I'm sitting there like, well, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like, like, I didn't know that I was like, man, I, I thought that, but like, that's pretty cool that, you know, the science is proving what? Because I'm not a scientist. That's the one thing I can tell you. I am not a scientist, but I am <laughs> smart enough to learn in the way that some really intelligent people learn. But I also have the street smarts of understanding what it's like to be in the clubhouse, in the locker room, and be able to help uh, develop men and, and um, create a winning environment. And those are things that I don't think you can read in a book. I think that those are things that are that are learned and. Some leaders have natural instincts to that, but education is about collaboration. It's about leveraging learning amongst each other. And so Eugene and I never even really talk about that specifically because it's been evolution. It, that that conversation leads to another conversation, which then leads to um, him, you know, going in one direction and me going in another, and and finding our own ways to what we feel is building a better swing or building a better athlete or better movement patterns. And that's something that I like, I, I believe 10 years ago I wouldn't be doing because I knew everything. And now I realize, and again, when you read, um, you know, old school, new school, I, I think that when you really read it, I've read it four times now because I'm sitting there going, <laughs> I, I think I know the information. And then I go back and I'm like, Oh man, It's awesome. Like the way he talks about the body and the understanding of the body. And then when I try to put it in my own words, am I doing it? Am I doing, am I the conduit that my players need to hear? Am I saying it in a way that they can understand? And that's why I'm trying to regurgitate it, to learn it as much as I can from a scientific side, but then be able to get it in the layman's terms, which I think a lot of my players, neat you know and and i think that that's the art of coaching i think that's the future of coaching is that these we're being inundated by so much so fast that the greatest communicators are going to be the ones that really survive going through this you know again young guys taking jobs that they're not ready for they could get swallowed because what happens when you get that first you know player who just absolutely bucks every single thing that you have have to say, and he's got a franchise tag on him. Like, who's going to win that battle? And that's something that, you know, you need to have cooth and you need to have social intelligence to be able to navigate those waters. And I think that comes through time, experience, and wisdom.
2: Absolutely. I think you hit the nail right on the head, uh, not only with that response, but really throughout the entirety of our conversation today. And Uh, One thing we like to do, Greg, is give our listeners the means to receive further information. Um, If any of those guys tuning in want to reach out to you and get in contact with you about anything that we've talked about today, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: You know, I probably would say email, but I'm I'm actually not the greatest email person in the world. Uh, (laughs) Like it sounds like it should be the way. I I probably would say uh, my Twitter handle, which is Brownie underscore uh, GB44, and I think that that's something that You know, because I find myself when it comes to baseball, that's where I find myself in because I'm I've evolved into the visual learner that most of us are, you know, and so uh, that's where I think I do a lot of my going back and forth. But most of the time, if if it's conversation, um, I'd rather even just do it on the phone. Uh, I think I'm a little bit more old school that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, Greg, again, we appreciate you jumping on with us. You dropped a whole bunch of nuggets uh, throughout the interview. And again, uh, you know, uh, you, you did exactly what the, you know I projected you as a scout <laughs> to do um, and bring in with uh, a, lot of, a lot of things in that way. So we really appreciate you sitting down and making some time for us today.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I just hope that uh, if there's anything I could do for you guys in the future, you just let me know. Don't hesitate to ask.
2: Thanks, Coach. Thanks, Brownie.
1: Man, Brownie's the man. That that was awesome. Uh, This call takeaway is brought to you by Silverback Sports. Silverback Sports is the
2: alpha when it comes to arm care and training essentials. Silverback's training products are constructed from premium materials and are designed to be durable and dependable to withstand the toughest and most rigorous throwing or training programs. Visit shopsilverback.com to see their entire line of high-quality products at very affordable prices. Also, follow them on Twitter, instagram and facebook to stay up to date at shop silverback that's at shop silverback yeah joe what was your biggest call takeaway from our conversation today
1: yeah no i think one of the big ones that he talked about early was he's talking about you know again those uh those those players that f- you know fill up the roster right where you're gonna have all these um you know maybe your second tier guys but they're how important they are to your team's success and one of the big things he talked about is guys you know understanding you know their role and you know accepting that role right um, but understanding that, you know, they still need to get better and they need to keep driving to be the dude, you know, the very next year. Um, and I think that that was a very, uh, you know, powerful thing. And that's something, again, I connected with instantly because that guy was me hundred <laughs> percent that, you know, again, th- there definitely was teams where I was the dude. Right. And then there's other parts, uh, you know, on different teams, you become a, d- a different player and you got to learn how to uh, see where you fit within that team. Cause at the end of the day, um it's not your your role is a lot less important um as the results that the team is getting right so you know on certain teams you know you might be the guy and on other teams you're the supporting role and other teams you know i was more coaching um on on that end so i think that was big for me is understanding that and understanding that the team success comes uh much more is much more important than my individual role on that team so that was mine how about you bo
2: no yeah you kind of uh Stole mine actually, Joey. But um, building off that, you know, just as coaches, like he talked about, the in- individuality of players, um, understanding their goals, what they want. Uh, you know, not everybody wants to play in the big leagues. So, uh, like he had mentioned, that's part of creating that winning culture is uh, creating the chemistry, getting to know your guys on more of an individual level and then helping them achieve their goals. I think that's something that we all can uh, take away and, and start to try to apply to bridge that gap between uh, uh, the chemistry on our teams.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Well, guys, if you haven't noticed, we have been absolutely hammering with resources on, with our, we've been crushing it lately, getting all these resources on there. Um, again, again, that's a free membership for you guys. We've got a whole bunch of things on there, practice plans, uh, when it comes to, you know, workout uh, routines, things that we're going over at 108, uh, things that are going over at a uh, different, um, uh, different teams and different uh, organizations, things like that across the country um, and different programs. So definitely go and check that stuff out. Again, it's a free membership. Uh, we got promo codes. Um, there's a whole bunch of things on there. We also are, are doing a uh, giveaway. You guys gonna make sure uh, that you're, you're jumping on those giveaways on a constant basis. Uh, we're, we're starting to hammer with some of those things as well. So make sure you guys are staying up to date on that. But from us and our partners over at Yakker Tech, until next time, Farm System out. <coughs>